for today's message from 1 Peter 2. And the theme of this series, as you see on the screen, is living right in a world gone wrong. On this first Sunday in August, we're just a month or less away from back to school and the summer being over. And so we're now going to be treated to a month of back-to-school commercials on TV and their regular reminder that summer's fast coming to a close and with that all too soon. As elementary and high school young people get set to return to school, so also do a number of first and second and third year college students, many of whom do not yet know what they plan to do with whatever degree it is that they attain. Many of them have been fretting about it since about their junior year in high school, and they've been fretting about it due in no small measure to the number of people, well-meaning friends and family, who've been asking them since that time, so where are you planning to go to college? Followed by, what's your major going to be? Feeling the pressure to give an answer, many a young person dutifully makes something up. I'll be a veterinarian. I'll pursue accounting. I think I'll go in the pre-med program, and on it goes. The problem with this yearly ritual is that studies show that a vast majority of college students change their major at least once, a majority doing so at least twice. But the fixation that we have with planning our lives, centered on our education and then the supposed career that will follow, says something about how important we think our work is and how important it is that we find work that we've chosen to be something that we like. But the search for what you like turns out to be a dead end for most people. And I'll tell you why in a moment. After I ask that the fans be turned out, because my sermon is going to blow in the second row in just a moment. So thank you guys. Back in October of 2010, I preached a message on work from the book of Proverbs, and I quoted the late and venerable radio personality, Paul Harvey, who said, if you take your hobby and make it your job, you'll never work a day again in your life. And so the idea is to find what you love to do, do it, and you'll find fulfillment. But the fact is, the vast majority of the world, including Americans, is still looking. A 2007 survey found that quote, Americans hate their jobs more than ever before, with fewer than half saying they're satisfied. This echoes a survey from earlier in that same year that more than four out of five U.S. workers do not have their dream jobs. Now, why is that? Well, it's because we are not to find our joy in what we do. Now, hear this. We are not to find our joy in what we do, but rather for whom we do it. This means that what my particular job is, is much less important than the reason for which I do it. One of the consequences of the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world is that activities that were intended to be ways to please God by reflecting His image back to Him have now become ways to find my fulfillment and quite apart from God. And as a result of that, we find ourselves expecting too much out of things that cannot ultimately satisfy, including our work, whether outside the home in pursuit of a paycheck or inside the home as a housekeeper. 
God gave humanity the ability to work at the very outset of creation. But he did that as a means for us to reflect him back to him. Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter of the Bible, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now notice this next two words, so that, here's why they will be made in my image. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea, birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so the image of God is necessary. These God-like capacities are needed in order for us to have the creative and the intellectual and the aesthetic abilities that are required to reflect God back to Him. So let us make these creatures in our image so that they can perform this kind of work. And then after that summary statement of man's purpose in chapter 1, God gives the details of the creation of humanity in chapter 2, and He said this of the first man. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And God then created the woman to help that man in their dual work of imaging God by using their abilities to reflect him. Work, then, is part of our purpose as image bearers. But sin changed two things about work. The first one is, work became much more difficult. And so after the first sin, God speaks to the man, the woman, and the serpent. And he says to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. So the first change because of sin is work became more difficult. But the second change that sin brought to our God-given work is that it became self-centered. Instead of a way to reflect God, it now becomes a God replacement to find my fulfillment. And so what I do is more, it became more important than for whom I do it. God assigned work in creation. It was tainted by the fall. But here's the good news. It can be restored by the gospel and a biblical worldview. A biblical view of the world sees the ability to work as a gift from God. It sees the difficulty of work as a result of the fall, and it sees the purpose of a Christian's work as being to bring glory to God. And today we're going to be reminded that it's not the particular work I do, but the one for whom I do it that is most important. The passage that we're going to consider in 1 Peter chapter 2 is part of a whole section that's describing how to fulfill the Christian's purpose that's stated in chapter 2 and verse 12. Take a look. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. That is... The lives of Christians should display something distinct from that of non-Christians, pagans, such that the difference they see might cause them to inquire and to desire and to come to Jesus and so glorify God on the day of judgment. And then following verse 12, Peter, who wrote this, gives three particular areas in which this difference is to be seen. The first we saw last week. 
that the way we behave as citizens toward the government is to be distinct. Today we're going to see the way we behave as workers in our workplace is also to be distinct. And then next week, the way we behave as wives and husbands in marriage. Now please notice this. Peter does not say people will know you're Christian because you go to church. They may think you're weird, but he doesn't say they'll know you're Christian because he doesn't say they'll know you're a Christian because you read your Bible and pray. All of those are things, of course, we should do. But they're not the activities that Peter calls out that are to have effect on unbelievers. You see, unbelievers don't go to church. Okay, the Christmas and Easter crowd, or if they're dragged to it for some ceremony. And unbelievers don't read the Bible regularly or pray regularly, but they do interact with the government. And they do have to work for a living. You know, most people. And so they do have a boss and work, and they do have home life issues. It is in these common grace activities, given in creation but tainted by the fall, that we can most effectively show the difference that Christ makes. And so inserted in your program is an outline from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. I want us to quickly see a few things that Peter tells us then about this work that is to be a witness to the world of the distinctiveness of Christianity. First Peter tells us, as I say in the outline, submission and work requires consideration. Consideration. Notice verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, I'm using the word consideration, not the way that Peter uses it in verse 18 about kind masters, considerate masters. That's one way that word is used. It's used another way in chapter 3 and verse 7 that we'll see next week with regard to domestic home relationships in marriage. In verse 7, husbands are to be, you see it in chapter 3 and verse 7? to be considerate in the way they live with their wives. The way he's using it in chapter 3 and verse 7 is the way we would use the word consider if we say consider this. We're saying think about it. And so when I say submission in work requires consideration, I'm saying it means that we have to think about it. Now, what do we have to think about with regard to our work? Well, I say in your outline, consider, think about the fact that God is the one who is our audience. And you see that in verse 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God. The word that's translated fear is the word from which we get our English word phobia. And the NIV says rightly, in reverent fear of God, even though the words of God are not in the original text. But in the context, it's definitely referring not to reverent fear of your master's But in reverent fear of God, you carry out your responsibility to your supervisor, your boss, in this case, your your master. And so it is reverence, it is fear for God that causes us to work in a way that's distinct from the world and to look at our work in a way that is distinct from the world. And it's used that way, fear of the Lord, as something that we can choose to do, choose to do in our work 
choose to do in every area of our lives in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 29. Here's what Proverbs chapter 1 says. They hated knowledge and did not choose, notice, to fear the Lord. And so we make a conscious choice thinking about who it is that is the audience, the one who is watching our work. At the end of verse 19, notice what Peter says. We do what we do in our work because we are, notice the phrase, end of verse 19, conscious of God. Conscious of God. So it's not ultimately because of the human that we serve, the human boss, the human supervisor that we serve, that we submit, but because we are conscious of God. He is the audience for our work. And we see this in Colossians chapter 3. Paul, who wrote Colossians, says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence, that is, fear of the Lord. Whatever you do, work it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So we must engage in consideration as we submit in our work, considering who it is that is the audience ultimately for our work. But secondly, I say in your outline, he's not only the audience, but considering who it is that is the rewarder. God is not only the audience, he is the rewarder. Paul says that in the verse that's on the screen. But also, please note, At the beginning of verse 19 and at the end of verse 20, notice what Scripture says. For it is commendable if. And then at the end of verse 20, this is commendable before God. So the activity that Peter is telling us to engage in, the kind of attitude that we're to have in our work as witnesses to a world who approaches it in a fallen way, if we do it the way God says, it is commendable before God beginning of verse 19, end of verse 20. Now, here's what's interesting about that word commendable. It is the Greek word charis, and that word is translated grace. It is something that pleases God, that finds favor with God, is what Peter is saying. When we approach our work in the way that he's describing here, It's commendable to God. It pleases Him. It finds favor with Him. Literally, it is a grace toward God when we approach our work in this way. Now, you may be asking yourselves, I thought grace was unmerited favor, and yet here it appears to be saying, if I work in this particular way, I'm going to receive grace. No, it is saying that God looks on that favorably. God is pleased by that. And I'll deal with that again a bit at the end of our time. So submission in work requires consideration. Secondly, in your outline, it requires consistency. Points A and B, start with that word so you know how to spell it. Requires consistency, and it requires consistency in two ways. In whatever type of work that we do. Whatever the type of work, first of all. Now notice, this is addressed to slaves. So you say, you, Brown, are talking about how I work in my day-to-day job, whether that's something I get paid for or whether I'm a stay-at-home housekeeper. But in the way I do that, I need to be conscious of, of God. He's the audience. He's the rewarder. 
for what I do. But here it's talking about slavery. How do you get my kind of situation out of that? Well, the word that is translated slaves is a word for this, household servants. It is not the same thing that we think of as slavery today. And let me just run through some of what slavery was then. They were owned indeed and bought and sold in the first century, but it was a completely different historical context. Slaves were in many cases indistinguishable from free persons, and they were given to a large number of different occupations. They were cooks and cleaners, personal attendants, they kept gardens, tended animals, tutors, physicians, nurses, household managers, salesmen, contracting agents, they engaged in civil jobs, things like street cleaning and paving, sewer cleaners, administrators of funds, and even personal managers. Some were even in executive positions with decision-making power. Now, slave's particular job seems to have been based on his personal skills. These were similar tasks to the kinds of jobs we hold today. They were often able to maintain their own homes and property. They were sometimes employed by people other than their owners, with perhaps two-thirds of what they earned going back to the owner who was responsible for their physical well-being. And so they were not so much a social class as they were a legal class. And so slavery was regarded by many people as a preferred state. In fact, many people sold themselves into slavery because it was a life that was easier than being a poor, free person. As a slave, you had a place to live, guaranteed provisions, physical well-being. The free person had to think about all of that stuff for himself. And so in many cases, they were better off than free men in that they had access to things like education that others may not have had. They might also sell themselves into slavery to obtain a better position. And some of those positions would be held uh, up to 40 years of age. Others might sell themselves to get a better education or better trade training. Believe it or not, there are famous philosophers, artists, teachers, and so on who were the result of slavery. Many non-Romans sold themselves into slavery with the justified expectation of becoming Roman citizens after they were freed. The reality was slavery was a state that many desired. Most slaves were set free by the age of 30. At the beginning of the first century, Caesar Augustus introduced laws to restrict the age and number of slaves that could be freed. And even though it was possible, and our text hints at it, it was possible for masters to be, to be cruel because they did indeed own these slaves, very few died because of mistreatment in slavery. Owners were given rights over their slaves, including a demand for restitution or punishment if a slave was derelict in his duty or ran away. And so there were some things that were similar to the kind of work they do, did to the kinds of tasks that we perform. But there were differences as well. Slaves had an education often, sometimes had good jobs, but they were not free. They came from being captured in war, being born into a slave family, or selling themselves into slavery, or by being kidnapped. Their legal rights were diminished. We, on the other hand, have significant legal rights, particularly in the workplace that slaves did not have. We, unlike they, are free to move from job to job, but a slave was owned and not free to seek another master in most cases. 
And in our system of justice, we have work-related rules and rights and that we can pursue those by various means provided in our legal system. And yet, this is what Peter is telling us then. This is what God is telling us through the pen of Peter. That whatever type of work we are involved in, with all of those various trades, and in that sort of situation, with the limited but real rights that they had, nonetheless, we are called to submit ourselves and display the kind of attitude that Peter says God commends. So it requires consistency in whatever kind of work we're involved in. But also, I say in your outline, it requires consistency no matter the kind of boss we have. Consistency with whatever type of boss. Again, notice the passage. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, the word that's translated masters is the Greek word despotes. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your despots. So this is somebody who owned. This is somebody who was in control. And then the word that's translated harsh is the Greek word from which we get scoliosis. So you've got a despot who's crooked. And that's the boss you work for. And even with that type of boss, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves. Consistency with whatever type of boss. So this is somebody who is crooked, somebody who is not in line with what he ought to be. As someone looking out for your best interest. Harsh. And yet you thought your boss was the exception. And we all think that, don't we? Well, you don't know my boss. God must not have been thinking about my boss when he said, submit yourselves in reverent fear of God. I'm get, at the end, I'm going to talk about some of the ways that we might engage in what Peter calls unjust suffering. Notice what he says in verse 19. It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So what kinds of unjust suffering might we suffer under a crooked scoliosis despot? I'll talk briefly about that at the end. So submission requires consideration. It requires consistency. It requires a third thing. It requires, long word, comprehensiveness. 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 That is, it is full-orbed. It is all of our lives in the work that God has assigned us to engage. Comprehensive. And I say underneath that that it involves three things. It includes our deeds. It includes our words. And it includes our attitudes, our deeds, our words, and our attitudes. Now, why do I say that? I say it for this reason. Notice in verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then when it goes on to describe Christ, who is our example, 
an example that's to be followed in the context of the work that's been assigned to us, it mentions how he talked or how he didn't talk. They hurled insults at him, verse 23, but he did not retaliate. Verse 22, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. No deceit, even though threats are hurled at him, he does not retaliate either by word or by deed. And of course, that ability to refrain from reacting in word and in deed comes from his heart attitude. It was Jesus himself who said, Matthew 12, 34, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So the call that we have to submit even to crooked despots is a comprehensive call that involves, yes, our deeds, yes, our words, but those all flow from our attitudes. Submission requires consideration and consistency and comprehensiveness. And lastly, it requires a calling. Verse 21 says to this, to this, in all of these circumstances, whatever the work, whoever the boss, to this you were called. And what are we called for? We're called to, according to Peter, in verse 20, to suffer for righteousness. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. It anticipates if you're living as a Christian, there will be people who don't like you. There will be people who work with you as co-workers who don't like you because of that. There will be bosses, masters who don't like you because of that. And you are called to suffer for righteousness. That is, you refuse to violate a scripturally informed conscience. And that may, in our day, in our context, take the form of subtle pressure to do things or to go places that are a problem for our conscience. It may cost you the fast track to a promotion or even the slow track to a promotion. You may not get the promotion at all. Now hear this, dear friend. We don't find our fulfillment in our jobs. We find our fulfillment in doing our jobs in a way that's pleasing to the one for whom we do it. And therefore, if I can't get that promotion without compromise, I don't need that promotion. The promotion I want and that I will ultimately get is the one that the rewarder, Jesus, will ultimately give. And so we will not in the workplace, as Christians showing a difference then, use our tongues in the same way that everybody else does about the boss. The boss may be a despot and the boss may be scoliosis, may be crooked. The boss may be harsh, but we don't talk the way everybody else talks as Christians. Now I say we don't, the truth is most of us do. But God is calling us to show something different. And that refusal to be different may cost you. 
I have had bosses, believe it or not, I worked for upwards of 30 years in an honest job before I was taken on full-time here. And in a number of jobs from age 16 on. And I have bosses who were real jerks. And yet God is calling me and calling you, fail though I did, and fail though you do. God is calling us to show something different in our deeds, our words, and our attitudes. To this you were called. Now I said that at the beginning of verse 19, end of verse 20, if we do this, if we heed this calling to show God's character, His glory in His world as a light in darkness so that they will see your good works and glorify your, our Father on the day He visits us, if we engage in this calling, that it's pleasing. It finds favor with our God. But grace is by definition unmerited favor, and yet the word for grace is what's used there. But remember what Jesus said. John 15 and verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it is God who initiates our calling, and it is God who works in us to produce fruit. But we are responsible to heed his call, follow his command, to work with him after he graciously rewards us, even though it is really all him. The Bible tells us, what will happen when we get rewards for stuff that ultimately He's done through us? Revelation chapter 4 says this, The 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. He gives crowns that we lay before His feet. And they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so as Christians, we are called to something higher than that which the world presents. We are to be lights in darkness. They are to see our good works and glorify our Father. And when God is pleased to do that work in us and have its good result, we will ultimately come to remember it all is because of Him and cast our crowns at His feet. I say in your take-home truth, in your outline, our calling in the work we do is to work toward our higher calling. Now, the only way that you are going to be able to do that is if you know Jesus. Have a relationship with God through Jesus. It is my pleasure to tell you how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus. And I would love to do that. And if you will, see me as we leave today and just say, let's get together this week, or I'll talk to you after the service, or you can email me, info at cbctrenton.com. I'll be happy to tell you how you can have a relationship with Jesus, be changed from the inside out, have your desires transformed so that now you look at your work in the way that the great apostle Peter has indicated. For those of us who are Christians, I trust, friend, that even though I've had to go quite quickly, that you've been able to think about what God is telling us and the radical difference that's being presented in Scripture versus the way that even as professing Christians we normally go about it. And think about Loving Monday and the title of the message at the top of your outline. Take this job and, and love it.
It's not that I really love the particular task, but I love the God who has assigned me to that task. And I want to pursue it that way for his glory. Now, we have one item, happy item, to take care of before we are dismissed. Thank you all for your indulgence. But our church is now at a point where we have gone through a phase of establishing as a church. Our church is just over 12 years old now. And, in fact, we're not quite 12 years old until next month. So we're going on 12 years old. And for most of that 12 years, we were a new church, fledgling church, establishing ourselves. And God has blessed us over these years to, little by little, have people come and shoulder the work to learn of Him and to grow in Him. When we first started out, we had people that came, and even though we had little to offer them, they saw that this was a place for them to use their gifts and abilities to please God. And so God, in His good providence, brought people, young people, to come to a youth group that had no other young people. Jessica Carrico was our first teenager, and she was our only teenager. And then shortly thereafter, God brought uh, Madison Akers and her family here. Many of you know Madison. She's now married to Billy. Billy's come to Jesus, and Billy was baptized in our church. They're now expecting their first child, but they're faithfully serving here and looking to rear this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord here. And so you have, you have Jess and you have, you have Madison. Larissa was one of those teenagers who came very early on. And Larissa and Josh and their little ones are serving here. Do you see how God brings those people and now those people are, by God's good grace, beginning to raise their families through our church. God is taking us to that phase. Isn't that an exciting thing? Now, why do I say all that? Because today we have a couple of our young people who by their own initiative said, we want to join the church in our own right. These are young people who have grown up through much of our program. One of them is Lainey Brown, my daughter. And Lainey has been here the whole time. And Rachel came in what grade? Seventh grade. So these are young people who have been through our program, been through our high-impact program. God has worked in their hearts, and now as young ladies, young adults, they are saying, by our own initiative now, we want to align with God's church, and we want to take what we've been given and use our gifts and abilities in the lives of others. So Lainey and Rachel, if you guys will come. And by God's grace, we want to see this replicated over and over and over again. So many of our young people go through a church's program and then they leave the Lord. But we want to see young ladies and young men like these young ladies who say, you don't have to come to me to ask me to join. They initiated and said, we want to join. We're now 18. We're going off to college, but we want to align with our church and serve the Lord. And so we're thankful. We're thankful for the Muscat family. I know our family is thankful for Laney. We want you to know, ladies, on behalf of our entire church, that we are extremely proud of both of you, that we are praying for you, that we look forward to what God is going to do in your lives, in and through you, in the months and years to come. Laney is going to be leaving in a couple of weeks to go to Clearwater Christian College. And Rachel is going to be going to Concordia University in, in Ypsilanti. 
But whatever vocation, whatever work they do, they have come to understand that that work is for the Lord. And so they want to join. We have heard their testimonies of salvation and baptism. They've signed our relational commitments, and so we are recommending them to membership in our church. All in favor of receiving Laney and Rachel into the membership of CBC, indicate by saying amen. Amen. All right. Let's stand together. I didn't say are any opposed because Annie's out there. (laughs) And as is our custom, we'll have our final song. And when we are finished with that, you all come around and welcome these young ladies into the membership of our church. We're actually just going to close in prayer and then you can come up. Thank you, Lord, for the word that we have heard this morning preached to us. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in our callings, regardless of what that vocation is. Thank you for these uh, ladies who have seen it a priority to come and present themselves for membership. And I pray now that we would uphold our commitment to them and that they would uphold our commitment to us, that you would uphold all of us in our walk with you by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.